I would imagine if you went to school this past week, or if one of your kids or grandkids or neighbors did, that probably the teacher said, what did you do this summer? And if you remember that and you were really short, you told the class what you did. And if you were taller, you had to write in an assignment in a paragraph or a few about what you did this summer. I thought maybe it would be fun for us to ask the question, so what's Evergreen been up to this summer anyway? You know, churches that know what they're doing actually slow way down in the summer and kind of limp their way through and then they gear up for the fall. But we don't have that good sense. And if you've missed a Sunday or two, as Ann and I have, you might have blinked and missed some great things that have happened. Let me just very briefly tell you. This summer, Evergreen, we sent... 150 kids and 55 adults and young adult helpers to camps. That's awesome. Way to go. At the end, you're going to want to applaud God and you. Second, we created and hosted and staffed a community and job health fair. Thank you, uh, Rick and team, for doing that. Elizabeth and her team in women's ministry sponsored six mom uh, moms meetups. And I heard the story of one family brand new in town, saw this gathering happening, came, and now are a part of, a committed part of Evergreen. You may be here today. We sent two missions teams. Several of you went to Cambodia and participated in a five-day medical and dental clinic serving 3,751 patients, of which over half of them made commitments of their lives to Christ, and many of them flooded Foursquare churches in the area that weekend as well. Awesome. And Rick and Elizabeth and Brad and Isaac Hovitt went to Guatemala as a scouting trip with Food for the Hungry to establish a relationship there with three Mayan villages. And starting next year, we're beginning a 10-year relationship with those villages. We're adopting them to partner in a 10-year sustainability development program that will take all kinds of shapes and forms. But wait, there's more. The Ginzunais are still coming. Tuesday... Tuesday at the Marketplace, downtown Hillsborough, Brad and the team led a group that served 300 to 500 students that collected there every week. And several of them have found their way here to be a part of youth ministries at Evergreen. Summerfest, over 100 of you volunteered in a formal and committed way to serving 1,200 friends and family members that joined us for Summerfest four weeks ago today. This summer, we sent Grant and Marta Crichton to plant a church in Walla Walla. They're doing so great. You'll be thrilled to hear some of their stories later. And around here, what we always celebrate the most are 10 water baptisms. That's what's happened in addition to all the other regular stuff at Evergreen. I think you could say thank you, God, and way to go, Evergreen. Yeah. So if you're joining us today as a guest or if you've been here just for a few weeks, that's what we do around here when we really moderate back. Now we're ready to gear up for fall. Are you ready to go? Yeah. When I was a kid growing up on the farm, we had huge gardens. And I learned something about garden plants. Some of them grow like crazy but they grow out on the ground and they're not very productive and they're, the fruit or vegetables end up being trampled and spoiled or rotted. Plants like tomatoes and grapes and string beans need to have something to support them so that they can grow up 
Because while they're able to grow out to be ultimately fruitful and productive, they need to grow up. Many of you gardeners call that kind of structure a trellis. You may have a beautiful trellis in your rose garden, or you may have something that's kind of funky and ugly, like we used to put up for the string rings. The plants don't mind if it's attractive or not. They just don't mind that there's some structure there. A structure that helps the plant grow up and be productive and fruitful. Mission. This three-week series I'm launching today and will continue tomorrow, next Sunday, talking about mission at Evergreen is simply a trellis. It's a plan. It's a structure that we as a community have agreed to that we're going to do these few things together. There's nothing sacred about the plan, but there's something very helpful about the trellis. We call the Evergreen Way around here God Gather, group, and give. And today I get to talk with you about gather. The point of this message is very simple. It's we love God and people better when we gather. We get better when we're together. Now, some of you have noticed, this isn't you, but it's some of the people that attend some of the other services. You have noticed that God has a challenge with how to grow us up to being a spiritually, emotionally, and relationally healthy community because he's working with some pretty raw material, isn't he? I mean, really. But Jesus is really used to that. In fact, all we have to do is look at his 12 apostles and discover that he had some pretty raspy guys, a motley crew. In fact, before motley crew came around as an old rocker band, they should have had the name for that. The only difference between them and the Motley Crue band is that the band actually had some talent. These guys did not bring much to the mix. And in three years, Jesus made a community that was productive and effective enough to literally change the world. To start a movement through which God has changed your life and mine. And what did they bring? Just a couple of things. Most of them were willing And secondly, they gathered. He gathered them together with himself, together as a team. And that's what God asks of us. He says to us, oh, I can help you grow like crazy on your own. But when you do it together, I'll produce this healthy, spiritual, relational, and emotional community. We only become healthy when we do it together. Now, my story started a long time ago, and some of you are going to find it hard to believe that human history actually preceded 1955. Don't bother to do the math. This week, I'm going to turn 59, so that's just taking care of it. You call me 60, though, you're going to get me bothered. 1955, this is how life worked in the Roth family. We got up on Sunday morning and we got ready and we went to church and we went to church first by going to Sunday school and we all checked into our classes and roll was taken. And baby, if you missed a week, people cared enough to check in with you the next week. And in addition to that care, there was a pretty healthy dose of accountability. The where were you needed to have a really good reason. Yeah. And then we went to church after we went to Sunday school. And our church wasn't uh, sophisticated enough. But some of you went to church and they actually passed the attendance book by. 
and you signed in. And afterwards, the attendant secretary let the, the FBI or whoever they were in the church know when you weren't there. And they cared enough to check in. Uh-huh. You needed to have a good reason. And then Sunday after church, we always had people over at our home for dinner or we went to someone else's place for dinner. And then Sunday evening, as I got into junior high, my parents dropped me off for six o'clock youth group. And then they joined us back with the rest of the church for seven o'clock Sunday evening worship. And then we all came back on Wednesday night for Bible study and prayer. And then on Friday night, we did home Bible study for the community of the neighborhood. Any of you resonate with that kind of a past? Sure. That wasn't just the Roth family. That wasn't just our church. That was what happened in the 1950s. That's how church life was defined. Have you noticed that our culture has changed just a bit about that? Just a bit. But before we talk about the environment that we find ourselves in, I want you to think about with me about three stories in the Bible today that cover a span of just 33 years. And see what the Bible has to say to us about gathering. The first, we ask the question, what did Jesus do? Always a good starting point when you ask a question about life. Jesus, right at the beginning of his public life of ministry at about 30 years of age, at about 30 AD, we think, it said this on one Saturday. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day... He went into the synagogue as was his, would you say the last word with me? Custom, custom. What is a custom? A tradition. It's a cultural habit. It's what everybody else is doing. It's what we do around here. So Jesus was born or he was raised in Nazareth and I don't know exactly how things worked in Nazareth, but there was some cultural custom about going on Sabbath on Saturday to worship with others in synagogue. And my hunch is that if you didn't do it, that people would know about it the next day. There was some culture, social pressure. There was also likely some religious pressure. My hunch is that if you didn't show up to worship in synagogue, that probably the priest or the rabbi might be checking in on you to provide some fatherly care about how are things going. There was cultural pressure and religious pressure to show up and gather. It was the cultural custom. And Jesus made that custom his own so that it wasn't just theirs, but it was his. He regularly gathered. Go in time, would you, with me? Just three years Jesus now has died. He's been resurrected and it's a day of Pentecost and Peter stands and he preaches to a huge crowd. People respond to Christ and we learn something about what the first Christians did relative to their gathering together. It says, those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
That's what happened three years later. Now, what was going on here? And why did these people not just show up together weekly, but daily? Well, think with me. For many of these folks, they were religious pilgrims. Some of these families had probably been saving for a lifetime to have this one-time journey to Jerusalem. They came from a lot of different cultures. They came from different languages. They came from different countries scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But they shared in faith one common thing. Their pious religious faith and practices, they came to Jerusalem. Probably many of them had been there for just over 50 days. They probably came for uh, Passover and had stayed the 50 days for Pentecost. And they were probably running a little low on cash. And they were probably going to celebrate Pentecost and go home. And Peter stands and preaches. And this amazing thing happens. And they hear about the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they respond in faith to him. And they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are stuck in Jerusalem. Now they can't go home. Let's imagine that a a third of them Maybe two-thirds of them were actually religious pilgrims. If it was two-thirds, 2,000 people who were planning to go back home after vacation now are in Jerusalem trying to make sense of this new thing that's happened in their life. Well, if you didn't have a job and you didn't have a place to stay and you didn't have food and you were running out of money and you were in a city, where would you probably hang out? Probably the mall, the biggest place in town. The only place you can hang out that's big enough for about 2,000 displaced people and kind of blend in and not get kicked out. They didn't have any place else to go. Now, I find it interesting that they gather daily, but I'm not certain that it's a model for all of us. You understand? They were stuck. And if you had no place to sleep at night, you would hope that someone would, a local would invite you into their home. And if you didn't have money, you hoped that they would serve some of their food with you. That's the context that happened in the early church. Now we learned some things from them that are very important in Christian fellowship about gathering together in large group and worshiping God and receiving teaching, studying God's word, gathering in the smaller group, enjoying meals together, receiving the Lord's supper together in communion, in sharing with others. We learn commendable things to do, but the cultural context that they were in was an unprecedented and unique experience in human history. And so they gathered together, not because of social or religious pressure, but because of economic pressure. It's how they survived by being together. Hmm. The third thing happened 30 years later. A letter that's written to people who had not come to Jerusalem as religious pilgrims, but had been scattered and dispersed across the huge Roman Empire. Most of these people apparently also had a common previous Jewish faith, but had come to a fresh faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Savior and Lord. And it was a lonely thing out there. 30 years later, by about the year AD 63, the Roman Empire was beginning to persecute this, what they considered odd sect of the Jewish faith. Christians were dying and martyrdom for their lives. Families were excommunicating family members who became followers of Christ. People lost their jobs. It was a lonely, frightening business being a Christian. And to those people, 
the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23 through 25, says these things. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Interesting. An entirely different environment. These people did not have social or religious pressure in a custom as Jesus did in Nazareth to gather weekly. They did not have the economic pressure of refugees of the first church, first Christians in Jerusalem. No, after 30 years, they actually had no external pressure to gather regularly. And for them, the Holy Spirit sends these words to prod them to continue to meet with conviction together because no one outside of them was going to have that conviction. And he said to them this, I want you to get together regularly and I want you to notice the point of view. It's very interesting because for many of us, when we think about going to church, we think like a consumer, don't we? I wonder if it's going to be a good week for me. I wonder if it's going to be speaking. I wonder if I'm going to like him. I wonder if I'm going to like the worship. I wonder, we put it first person. I wonder if, like a consumer, I wonder if it's going to work well for me. Notice this point of view. I wonder what my presence is going to do for other people. It's the point of view of a contributor rather than of a consumer. And this is what he says. If you choose to gather with others, you're going to contribute these things. You're going to spur others on to love God and people better. And you're going to spur them on to live in a way that's of service to others. So gather together regularly and you're all going to be encouraged. Isn't that awesome? And isn't that what you found? When you do the right thing for others, you end up benefiting back as well. Exactly. So, in summary of what we've seen in the Bible, what have we learned about gathering? We learned from Jesus that there are some social environments where there is social and religious pressure to get together and worship. We've learned that some points in human history, the church has gotten together rather spontaneously, and for some of them, it's been a matter of personal and economic survival. And we've discovered third that there are some places where there has no external pressure on us to gather. In fact, the cultural customs press against us and against our gathering together. And we have to make a commitment to a conviction that says, I will be countercultural and I will press into making a habit of participation where the culture wants to press me away from it. Did you notice in Hebrews 10.25, it speaks about the habit of some. I, I, uh, a custom is a habit that's shared by a group of people. That word is not used in Hebrews. It's used of individuals that decide to make a practice so that I habitually do something that's helpful for me. And of course, it's written in the negative here. 
He says, you know of stories and people that have been a part of your community of fellowship that have actually given in to the press of culture and they have made a habit of avoiding gathering together. That's what we've learned about gathering from the Bible. I'd like to tell you a story about church attendance in America because we're going to ask and answer the question together. So which of those biblical stories do we find ourselves in in 2014 in the United States of America? There's a very brilliant researcher. His name is Robert Putnam. And in 2000, the year 2000, he published a book called Bowling Alone subtitled, The Collapse of American Community. Any of you bowlers out here? Perfectly appropriate to go public and confess. When I went to college, I took bowling for PE. I want you to know that. You're impressed, aren't you? I took bowling, I took archery, I took soccer. I, that's why I'm the stud that I am today. That's why I've aged so, so very, very well. Bowling Alone is the name of his book. And he describes how Americans over history have connected together in groups, including churches. And then he wrote a follow-up book in 2010 called American Grace, focusing specifically on the American church. Now, I've mentioned two titles. Some of you are readers. Please don't read either book. They are dusty, boring, academic research reports. Just be thankful that your lucky day. I'm here, and I'm going to give you the one-paragraph executive summary. It's all you want. Trust me on this. But listen to what he says as he talks about American church history. Let me ask you a question. It's rhetorical. Don't answer out loud. It's not fair for a speaker to ask a question with a right answer and make you guess so that the speaker can tell you you're wrong. Okay? Rhetorical question. Don't answer. Answer it to yourself silently. What percentage of the American population do you think regularly attended church in 1776? Ready for the answer? 17%. Hmm. Yeah. Lots of reasons for that. Won't go into that. On a given Sunday or Saturday, Saturday and Sunday combination, 1776, 17% of people in America attended church. Now that number grew over the decades until the 1940s and the 1950s when on any given weekend, 45% of American people, tall and short, were in church on any given Sunday. We went to church like crazy. And then over the last 40 or 50 years or so, that's dropped back to about 35%. Now, this is interesting. Now, this is what Putman writes, I quote, People born in each successive generation, decade, have attended church about one week fewer than the people who were born a decade earlier. And he charts out church attendance just as he charts out Americans participating in other groups. So Americans attend church like we participate in the Elks Lodge and the Lions Club and, yes, in bowling leagues. I'm going to resurrect that sport right here at Evergreen. Yeah. You see, what happened was in World War II, 80% of the males of that, uh, of that uh, group of uh, 20-somethings participated in service, either compulsory or voluntary service in the World War II effort. And when those 80% of Americans came home and they got married and they had kids, they joined stuff like crazy and swelled organizations They joined the Moose Lodge, the JCs, and the Grains, and they joined churches. 
And then their kids, the boomers, and their grandkids, the millennials, dumped the Odd Fellows Lodge, and many either left church or started attending less often. Putnam writes, and I quote again, Americans have become less observant religiously over the last half a century, mostly because in declines from generation to generation, especially with the coming of the age of we boomers in the 90s and millennials at the end of the century. Interesting. Now, I want to talk to dads for a minute. The rest of you can listen in. But I want to talk to dads because you are, most of you, going to get some information today that you've never heard before, and it will be astounding. Several research studies have been done in the U.S. and Europe about the impact of parents' church attendance patterns and how their kids end up participating in church as adults and found a remarkable correlation, especially for fathers. One study demonstrated, quote, that if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotion, only one child in 50 regularly attends church as an adult. Hmm. But if a father attends regularly, regardless of the practices of the mother, three quarters of the children become adult church attenders. Dads, listen up. This is not just about you. This is about a legacy of the next generation. In another survey in the U.S., it was found that fathers are highly influential in attendance. I quote, If a child is the first person in a household to become a Christian, there's a 3% probability that everyone else in the household will follow. If the mother is the first person in a household to become a Christian, there's a 17% probability that everyone else will follow. However, when the father is first, there is a 95% probability that everyone in the household will follow. Dads, step it up. Listen up. This is not about you. This is about a legacy. And if you're not a dad, you are, and you're a man, you are a male role model influencer of others. And let me say this. If you don't find yourself in this story, and maybe your heart has kind of fallen because the dad in the life that's a significant family for you isn't currently modeling the way, I just want to tell you that I have faith for you. Anne's story is a part of the 3%. She came first in her family of eight as a 10-year-old girl. And over the years, every family member came to committed faith in Christ. You just claim right now that you're going to be a part of the 3%. And moms, if you're here and he's not and he doesn't want to come, don't fret about that. Just decide with God you're going to be a part of the 17%. And your family's all going to get there as well. But the point of this story, and I'm talking to dads, is this is not just about you. You have been given a role in life. 
that can change the generations to follow and collectively can change the next and successive two generations, folks. It hangs a lot on your shoulders. And some of you have never seen me wag my finger and spit before, and I am today. Because I'm giving you some good news, gentlemen. You matter. You count. Step up. Get here. Don't make her drag you. And don't be a butthead all the way to church. That's a word I'm not supposed to use here. But I've known Beavis and his friend too long and too well. And so it slipped out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You see, in the 1950s, our culture put pressure on families to gather. It was the right, patriotic, and American thing to do. But our culture has changed. Have you noticed? Just a little bit about that. Yeah. In fact, in 64 years after 1950, the culture not only puts pressure on us to gather in church worship and fellowship, but the pressure now of the culture is against that happening. We find ourselves solidly in Hebrews chapter 10. The good news for us is we know what is happening so that we can step in and do the right thing in it. You see, back when I was a kid, Wednesday nights were protected by churches and other social groups because it was assumed that churches co-opted that night for some variety of gathering activities. But Wednesday nights have been long gone. Aren't they filled now? Absolutely. With sports and others opportunity. Most of those good opportunities. And Sundays have within the last 10 years gone away culturally from having any degree of protection for religious worship and gathering. In fact, what we have found now is that church is losing Sundays to sports gigs and recreational activities and hanging out with friends and a lot of other wonderful things. All of this to say, and this is no cultural tirade, this is just to say this is the culture in which we live. Don't expect any kind of cultural support for your commitment to regularly gather. It will be a personal commitment which you support with personal practices until it becomes a personal habit, but it will be about you standing and making choices. Tom Rainer, who is a respected American church researcher over decades, says, and I quote, the number one reason for the decline in church attendance is that members attend with less frequency than they did even just a few years ago. We haven't stopped going to church in America, he says. We just go less often. And so when the frequency changes, attendance changes. Now, I'm on no tirade today about you better be here every week. The last three Sundays, Ann and I have been gone. Two of those, we had church together. That was a pretty small group, Ann and Jared. Last week, we took our granddaughters. I promised a story. I'm going to end with it shortly. Well, soon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm, but the point is, the point is that the culture around us is helping us be here less often. Three quick stories, sister cities of uh, churches of ours, all in the Portland metro area, all mega churches. Stories 
within the last 10 years. One of them, 10 years ago, served 5,000 people in average weekend attendance. And they had a couple of wonderful uh, Sunday morning services and a couple of very vibrant Saturday services. And then they also had another gathering on Wednesday nights. Over that 10-year period, they finally dropped one of the Saturday night services, and then they dropped the Wednesday night gathering, and then recently they dropped the remaining Saturday night service. And so that congregation, vibrant and large, serves all of their people for gathering attendance on Sunday morning in two services, down from four to two. But guess what? The number of people that are adherents to that church, that call that church their home, that would say that we regularly participate, is the same number of people as it was five years ago. But they worship less often, and so they can be housed in two services instead of four. That's what Tom Rainer is talking about. A second, one of our sister mega churches, uh, about the same period of time, uh, used to have a Sunday evening and a Wednesday evening along with Sunday morning. And at one point they dropped the Sunday evening and then they dropped the Wednesday evening. Now they just worship in Sunday morning services. And that church serves more people than it used to. But they've dropped two out of the five services because we attend less frequently. The third sister megachurch in the area used to have two vibrant Saturday night services and a couple of three vibrant Sunday morning services, and they've been thriving and flourishing. And over the past seven or eight years, they finally dropped Saturday night service, tried to make it Sundays, dropped that, tried the Saturday again, dropped that, dropped the Wednesday night, and currently worship on Sunday mornings. And they are serving the essentially same number of people that they did eight years ago. What has happened? Tom Rader said this very clearly. This is what is happening in America. We, as Americans, are similarly committed to participating in the life of a local congregation, and we attend less frequency. Interesting. Now, I happen to know on good authority that sometimes it's tough to go to church. I do. And Ann and I were reminded of that a week ago today, because we took our granddaughters to their church. Now, Ann and I are fairly well-informed about church. You understand that, don't you? We, we've been to a couple of those, and we know a few things about those. And I practice four times a, a weekend myself. And uh, I understand it can be tough to get to church. But it had been a long time since we took a four- and a three-year-old to church. Mm. Yeah. 20, mi- uh, 20 minutes each way. We got them all strapped in the car seats. We're all ready to go to church. We are a spiritual and holy family, two out of three generations. Their parents, I don't know. Dave Matthews, is that okay? I don't know. Uh, that You can talk to you. So we get the girls, I'll strap me, and we're going to church. And I got to tell you, by the time I got to church, I was not a happy papa. There was a lot of stuff going on in that car, and 20 minutes to church. And Now, I've spoken to that church and spoken to that church. We know that church. It's in Stanwood, Washington. This is not a, a large town. I got lost. I drove past the church building. Didn't make the turn. Katie, four-year-old Mac. Papa, you're supposed to turn back there. Papa, you're supposed to turn back there. I think you turn back. My mama turns back there. Say, that kid. But Papa, ah. and so Ann and I, I'm lost. I'm lost in Stanwood, driving around. Ann, would you look it up on the phone? And she's not getting it fast enough for me. I pull over. I'm looking it up. We're getting ready to come to church and be holy. Yeah. We finally found this place and. We get out and it's 10 minutes into the service and they're already singing and I hate coming to church late and I, it doesn't, you know, I don't get particularly excited when you come to church late and I'm <laughs> not happy about coming to church late. And then we have to check our kids in. They have this newfangled kind of an electronic thing where you need to check our kids in with the barcode. Okay. Well, we don't have a barcode for our granddaughters. Furthermore, the kids are in the system, but we're not. 
They don't have instructions for people like us. So I go over and I find an usher looking person. And I said, we're grandparents here. We're bringing our kids. Can you help us? And she found someone who was absolutely there on the spot to be helpful. And he checked us in. And finally, I got my two little numbers and barcodes for my granddaughters. And then they were sent. one was a squirrel and one was a monkey. <laughs> I don't know who the squirrel is and who the monkey Finally, I find the squirrel and I drop off the squirrel, the monkey with the monkey thing. And I finally get in there and they're about to finish up the worship thing. And I sit down with Anne in the back row because we're the last people in and I'm trying to get engaged. I know how to do this and I'm lost. (laughs) Going to church is hard. Yeah. And we had a wonderful service and we finished up and Papa gets to go pick up the girls. It's awesome. I have my numbers. I'm going to be successful. I know how this works. I show up at the squirrel cage and I talk to the squirrel leader woman (laughs) and I give her the number and I want the kid. And she says, as she looks at her notes, are you Raleigh? I said, no, I'm Jared. I'm the grandpa. Raleigh's the dad. And she said, only Raleigh or Hillary get this girl. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm all for security. We do that here. You understand that? That's what we do here. So I went down the hall because I am not dumb. I went and I saw Julia and I said, Julia, Papa's here. Come, Julia. So she comes running. And while she's running, I handed the thing to the teacher. And I said, I'm Raleigh. I'm going to get that kid. If I have to lie on my way out of church, I'm going to get that kid. I got her. I went back to the squirrel cage. One down, one to go. This can't be that tough. I say to the squirrel, or the, I say to the monkey lady, rather, the of the monkey, I say to the monkey lady, this is my granddaughter, that's my granddaughter. This girl wants her sister. Let her get, take this number and run. Well, by then it was so late, all the other kids were gone. She wanted to go home too. It was like, who, who cares? Grumpy, grumpy old grandpa. Let him have the kid. We got in the car. I don't need to tell the story. If you have kids that are young, you know the story. On the way, 10 minutes away, I remembered what good professor Dr. Dobson said. If you have toddlers in your house, set the high bar of success around the word survival. (laughs) If you get to church on Sunday morning and get the kids in and you get your body in here and no one's bleeding, good for you. (laughs) I'm only a week away from this memory. I understand. It is becoming decreasingly convenient and increasingly difficult to gather. We are not in Nazareth, folks, where the whole town's going to come on you if you don't show up and worship together. And we're not in Jerusalem, folks, where there's external, even economic reasons that we get together. We are solidly in Hebrews 10, folks. We live in a culture that in my lifetime has gone from highly supportive to highly disruptive when it comes to your regular commitment to gather. This is not some religious tirade. You know me better than that. We will not throw mud on God's love by sliming it with some kind of saying, if you don't come to church, God won't love you. God loves you whether or not you do anything good or bad. We won't slime his love. This is not about God loving you. Nor will we, nor will we darken his powerful grace by saying, if you don't come to church, you ask God for forgiveness, you better, you're kind of on a thin thread there, baby, because God's not keeping score with his love or with his grace. 
But we gather together because it's a scaffolding. It's a, it's a trellis. It's the evergreen way. Because we've learned that we're better when we're together than when we're not. And just like in the garden where stuff can grow like crazy on its own, but it can, those tomatoes can just go on the ground, but the fruit ends up being trampled on or it gets wet and it splits or it gets in the mud and it ends up going bad. No, we need the trellis. The trellis to help us grow up. And as we grow up to be mature, to be mature spiritually and socially and relationally. And even if what we experience together isn't like the perfect and preferred thing that we like, oh, being together, being together is where we're spurred on to love and good deeds and where we're all encouraged. So what's, what's your commitment about gathering? And what's your pattern and habit about gathering? And what choices would you like to make about regularly gathering? And most important as we pray, what's Jesus calling you to do? That's how we'll follow him.